Today on Government Matters, the Army's modernization plan for the force of the future, no matter the threat or the budget. The commander of Army Futures Command, General John Murray, is here. A sleeping giant in the government's artificial intelligence effort comes to life. The Energy Department's AI leader on building a government-wide AI enterprise. And what's on NASA's IT network? Even NASA isn't sure. Potential fixes for the problem from the agency's Inspector General's office. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Army Futures Command's modernization efforts include a new software factory designed to train soldiers to solve future challenges. The Army plans to equip soldiers to use cloud technology and new software to address problems on the battlefield. General Mike Murray is Commanding General of Army Futures Command. Thanks for being here, General. It's been just over two years since this command was founded. What advantages have you found in being a separate command? Well, I think it's allowed us to focus. Um, so, my last job was in the, in the Pentagon, and I was absolutely amazed at how you tend to solve the problem of the day every day you walk to that building. But the ability to be separate, uh, the ability to have a clear focus on technology, small business, innovation, the future, I think has been the significant advantage of, of standing up Army Futures Command. Let's talk a little bit about the software factory um, specifically. What are, what are your goals there and how are you recruiting the people that you need? Well, it's an amazing story. So the, the primary goal is this is going to be by soldiers for soldiers. Um, and so I, I, am, I started off convinced that we had the talent in the formation. So the first cohort starts one January. Uh, it took us all of three days to recruit that first cohort. Um, and, and they're all highly qualified. And then just recently, we did the announcement for the second cohort, which will start a little less than a year from now. And within a week, we had over 15,000 uh, soldiers express interest, all serving soldiers. None of these are somebody we got to recruit. This is just the talent that's in the United States Army today. What does that tell you? It sounds like maybe you had an, an untapped pool of, of people that was interested in this world. That's exactly what it, it tells me. And you know, out of the first cohort, which is 25, 11 of those soldiers were going on their way out of the Army because the Army was not fully utilizing that talent. So I, I, I remain convinced, as a matter of fact, I know for a fact now that we have the talent in the formation. We just got to identify it, provide us some training, then utilize it. You touched on that soldier-centered piece. I know that's been a, a, a big part of Army Futures Command. How has that changed the way that you approach acquisition? It's such a, an amazingly easy concept. Um, and we started off, I mean, it, it's based upon the book Lean Startup, uh, customer-centered design, men-value prototyping. It just occurred to me after being involved in, in the front end of the acquisition process that we never involve soldiers till we get to the thing called a limited user test. And so it's way too late for soldier input at that point. Uh, the best example we've got is, is integrated visual augmentation system, better known as IVAS. Uh, where soldiers and engineers are iterating every three weeks to make sure that we understand the needs of the user in this case, or the customer in this case, our soldiers, upfront in the development process, well before we ever lock in the requirements. And so we account for that before we, we lock in the requirements. Does that make the process um, move faster overall? Were you finding that you know you get to this limited user test and suddenly this isn't exactly what you thought it was? Well, that's what we're trying to fix. 
Um, and so you don't get to a LUT or a limited user test without a clear understanding of what's most important to the to the user or the soldier. So it, it may slow down the front end of it, but you know the way we had done stuff in the past was we were constantly changing requirements to account for things we were discovering in the limited user test or the initial operation test and evaluation. And so if we count for all that early in the process, then I think overall the process will, and it is proving out, does move faster. And you have, you know, these things you're learning in, in Army Futures Command. Are you trying to, are you having success in feeding some of these um, lessons learned back into the big Army? Oh, yeah. So um, we, we had a session with uh, a number of GOs virtually last week, uh, general officers across the Army. And so it's 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 a it's a campaign of learning for the army, um, but I, I really think it is starting to catch on. And, and this year, uh, this coming year, this past year, this coming year for Army Futures Command, and my personal goal is to establish momentum for the things that we're learning. So the feeding it back into the the army, every opportunity I get to talk to soldiers, and you know, the, the general officers I talk to are excited. And if you want to see excitement. Talk to a bunch of E5s and E6s, uh, young soldiers that will see the, the fruits of our labor in terms of, of giving them the tools they're going to need on a, on a future battle. What are you seeing from industry? This is a, a change for maybe the way they've done business as well. And are you are you getting what you need uh, on that end? I am. Uh, industry has been incredibly cooperative. Um, industry is as interested in getting input from soldiers as we are uh, because it shortens their process and ultimately saves them money in the end. So the soldier participation, I think they're very excited about. Uh, the, the processes we're trying to get in place to speed up the acquisition cycle. And it's, you know, my role is really the or excuse me, the requirements part of it at the very beginning. Uh, but overall, the, the delivery of material to our soldiers uh, in a more rapid and timely fashion, and this concept of uh, software designed as much as possible or software-based as much as possible, uh, so that we do do upgrades. We're not upgrading hardware, we're upgrading software. I think industry is and should be very excited about that. With just about a minute to go, General, I know uh, the Defense Department writ large has sought to also, um, you know, connect with some of the smaller companies, with startups. Um, what's the role of Army Futures Command in that, and what are you seeing there? Um, so, you know, outreach, because I'm convinced we have confused small business and, and innovators and entrepreneurs for a number of years uh, because we're not consistent in our message. And when you're talking about a small business or an entrepreneur, uh, they have a hard time doing business with the Department of Defense. So simplifying that process and, and really what I'm focused on is making sure that they understand what problems we're trying to solve. Because in that community, uh, they are much more innovative than, than the United States Army or DOD, to be honest with you, in terms of how they go after solving problems. Um, and so introducing them to our problems in plain English that they can understand and helping us solve our problems and providing that outreach and that as much as possible, making that process easier for them to navigate is really our role. Thank you so much for the time, General. All right, thank you, have a great day. Thanks, Marjorie. Coming next, the Department of Energy's artificial intelligence solutions to pull the plug on COVID-19. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how AI can drive the treatment landscape.
The Department of Energy has a new partnership with Health and Human Services and Veterans Affairs to coordinate research efforts and data related to the coronavirus. The agencies will leverage artificial intelligence to work toward understanding the virus and developing treatments. Cheryl Ingstad is director of the Artificial Intelligence and Technology Office at the Department of Energy. Cheryl, welcome. What's the background for trying to build this consortium among agencies to share information and to drive artificial intelligence? Well, this really represents the, the administration's uh, goal to support any effort and a whole of government approach to, to uh, fighting this virus. And so what we're doing is really unprecedented, bringing together all of the data in HHS, the critical data sets, and then the critical data sets at the VA, and uh, placing them in a secure data enclave where we then apply AI to them with data scientists and then multidisciplinary teams of scientists as well to do the analysis. And we're co-located with Summit, which is our nation's fastest and most powerful supercomputer. So when we talk about the massive data sets that HHS and VA have, we're uh, well equipped to analyze that, those data. I don't mean to undersell the importance of fighting the virus and of the artificial intelligence component of this, but Cheryl, it strikes me that maybe the most significant accomplishment here is the very tight integration of these three agencies, of your agency with HHS and VA, it's something that agencies have been trying to do since time immemorial, it seems like, to break down these silos and to exchange information. What do you think the key to the success of this effort has been so far in that area and what will continue to help you have success in that exchange of information among agencies? Well, I think this is really a strength of DOE as partnerships. And so really working together with other agencies to determine what are their strongest uh, contributions that they can make. And so for VA and for HHS, it was the data. And then for DOE, it was really the uh, data scientists, the AI summit, the United States fastest computer, supercomputer, and then uh, these multidisciplinary teams that, of scientists that we have. The first five consortium is another effort that you're working on, response to natural disasters. What does that look like, Cheryl? Oh, that's an exciting new partnership as well. So, and I'm really proud to say that uh, I just arrived in February as inaugural director, and uh, we've been putting the team together, developing our strategy, and we also launched these two major projects that really focus on saving lives, the COVID Insights Partnership and then also uh, this one, the consortium for first five. And first five is really about the first five minutes that the first responders want to have the best information possible so they can make decisions that, to save lives. And this is where we're taking, uh, applying AI to data sets to put AI tools in their hands so they can react immediately to the situation. Uh, the Energy Department writes on the website that uh, this is directed at our, uh, an artificial intelligence effort and deep learning methodologies. I know the term machine learning. Tell me what deep learning is and what the intersection is with artificial intelligence technology, Cheryl. Oh, well, we're really pulling together all, all AI tools. So there are so many AI uh, technologies that, that we're applying here. And Microsoft is our co-chair. We have a number of other partners in, in the consortium and we're uh, in, in the categories, we're nonprofits, 
private sector, academia, and then multiple government agencies. So the data sets are also extremely important because of the use case with, uh, with fire, um, uh, firefighting organizations and first responders as the use cases. So we're pulling together data is really critical for AI. And then uh, a multitude of, of AI tools will be applied. Four research and development areas that you're focusing on in this effort, wildfire prediction, fireline containment, damage assessment, search and rescue, and natural disasters, including hurricanes and tornadoes. It strikes me another partnership per perhaps at some point in time will be with FEMA as they come behind the first responders there. Would you build in that case another consortium or would you add other stakeholders to the consortia that you're building, that you've already built? Well, in general, I, I would foresee that this consortium could handle that, which what you're really talking about is a pivot. And it's quite a broad consortium and we can bring in more government, we can bring in uh, more nonprofits, academia and private sector to uh, make a, a pivot in uh, responding to some of the proposals and whatever is most critical at that moment. Yes, that's exactly what I'm getting at, Cheryl. And the idea, again, as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, um, rather than establishing another thing, which is, I think, what traditionally uh, a government agency would have done, it sounds like your view would be toward in including as many stakeholders as possible in one consortium so that everybody eventually has access to everything instead of having these cylinders of excellence, as we've called them in government. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cylinders and silos and yes. So yeah, it's a it's a broad consortium and we take in the proposals and then respond to the most critical proposals. We have less than a minute left, Cheryl. What's over the horizon? What are you thinking about now that maybe won't come to fruition for some period of time in the future after you have some of the efforts that we've talked about uh, so far in our conversation really set in stone? Well, that's so exciting. So one of the things we just launched was an RFI for uh, really asking the AI community out there, what are the best technologies that the US should be developing that will drive AI, American AI leadership in the future? So we have hundreds of responses and we're going through them and that's very exciting. So I think responding to some of those, developing those technologies uh, is going to be an exciting time for the future. Cheryl Ingstead, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Very nice to talk with you again. Up next, NASA's not sure how many devices are on its network. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to get the agency's device inventory and security back on track. You're watching ABC7. Aeronautics and Space Administration doesn't know exactly how many devices are connected to its networks. A new Inspector General report finds NASA needs to do more to secure its networks from unauthorized access. Kim Benoit is Assistant Inspector General for Audits at NASA. Thanks for being here, Kim. What were the main takeaways from your report? So the main takeaway from our report is that IT security is really difficult. Mobility presents even more challenges. However, the agency is making progress in finding what devices are on the network and increasing security. They've started to implement controls around mobile device management and also their VPN to further secure IT devices that are connected to the network. However, more work remains to be done. 
what's the root of the problem there? Why is NASA struggling to get this accurate count of, of devices that are on its networks? So there's really two things that are contributing to this problem. The first is that NASA operates in a decentralized manner. So different NASA centers have different ways of authorizing devices to come onto the network. And then the second thing that we found is that there's a lack of enterprise-wide monitoring. So it's very difficult for the agency to get an overarching view of what devices are connected to the network. The agency has started to take steps to address this. They've implemented network access control and they're working with Department of Homeland Security to implement, to implement continuous diagnostics monitoring. What, what did you find um, were the problems created here? What risks does this present for the agency's cybersecurity? So mobile devices present unique security challenges for any federal government agency. They're portable. They can attach to a variety of different networks easily. Um, Apple and Androiding operating systems have their own unique security challenges. And then also devices that users use for both personal and federal or official use, um, there's a potential that the data could be commingled. So because of these risks, there's an elevated, because of these factors, there's elevated risks of either data loss or introducing something to the network that may cause a further security breach. I noticed in your report, uh, you, you noted that NASA tried to crack down on its network security uh, in 2018, but then there was some backlash to that policy. What, what happened there? So as we noted in our report, since 2006, the agency has had a variety of policies and memoranda related to the use of mobile devices. And so securing mobile devices is difficult because you need to balance user functionality with security. And sometimes those two things are working at odds with each other. So the agency had an initial policy that was too restrictive and um, impacted user functionality and what users needed to do on their devices. So they loosened up the policy and made it more less restrictive so that they'd have more monitoring. And in my estimation, this was a good move because in my experience, if you have IT security policy that's too restrictive, your users will find a way around it. And then that presents a whole new host of challenges. Sure. What recommendations did your report make for NASA? So we made recommendations looking forward to centralizing oversight of mobile devices, enhancing the policies, and working to continue down the path of their strategy to increase IT security. How has uh, NASA responded to those recommendations? The agency has been receptive to the recommendations and they're in alignment with the IT security strategy that they've set out. So um, between our office and their organization, there's agreement that these are things that need to be done to secure the enterprise. And I'll say that the OIG continuously monitors IT security at NASA um, through our annual FISMA audits and then other audits that we've done related to cybersecurity. So it's something that we're constantly engaging with the agency on. 
Sure. You mentioned sort of this um, push-pull between trying to make sure it's secure and, and trying to make sure it's functional for the users. Um, do you think that it, it just takes time to get that balance? Do you think it's sort of a, there's a little bit of inevitable kind of try and, and, and recalibrate? How do you think that goes? Yeah, I mean, it's a continuous struggle across the federal government. So, um, you know, your devices are constantly changing. The phone you had seven years ago doesn't look like the one in your pocket today. And the phone you're going to have seven years from now won't look like the one you have now either. So the agencies need to keep pace with the changing mobility. And then user demands in the way that users do their work has also changed. Um, there's been an increase focus on mobility, even with the pandemic and stay-at-home orders, we're all relying a lot more on our IT devices than we previously did. So it's a continuous challenge and a continuous struggle to find that right balance between user IT security needs and protecting the information. And with just about a minute to go, Kim, what do you see as the role of, of contractors and other um, you know, outside users of, of NASA networks? Um, what do they need to be doing better and what does NASA need to do to, to ensure that works out? So NASA has a lot of information and it's um, incumbent upon the federal employees as well as the contractors to protect that information and make sure that it's adequately secured and used appropriately and not to introduce additional threats to the network. So um, cybersecurity is very important. And you know, as we've seen from public breaches all across the government, it's everybody's responsibility. Sure, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Marjorie. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. And you get a preview of every show by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.